0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Chapter 6 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327 by William Holden Hutton this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami the reign of king edward i 1272 to 1307 edward i was crowned with his wife eleanor on august 19th 1274 he was the first king whose succession had been recognized without question from the moment of his father's death as due to his hereditary right He was better known and perhaps better loved than the heir of any other king had been. Cruel and hasty he had seemed in his youth when the baron's war began, but men soon learned to know him as a true and honorable knight who kept his word and did justice, who was stern with wrongdoers, but willing always to do right to the people and the state. Edward had had, too, the training of a great king. He had fought within and without the land, in Wales, in France, in Palestine. He had seen men in cities. He knew the foreign sovereigns, and he knew also the great barons and the great clerks and lawyers of his own land. He was less of a stranger than any of the kings who had gone before him since the conquest. He was born in Westminster, and he lived the greater part of his life, which was a long one for those times among his English people. When he came back to England to take into his own hands the government of his people, he began his rule with two aims which he kept ever before his eyes. The first was to bring the whole island, if it might be under one sway, if not to be the only king of it himself, yet to make his power as overlord a real one, to be, as the old English kings had been called, a true emperor of Britain. His second aim was to give his people a greater share than they had yet had in the government of the land. The lessons of the last thirty years had not been learnt in vain. He determined to make the courts free to every subject of the realm, and the council a parliament of all sorts and conditions of men. For England, his motto was, What touches all should be approved by all. Quad omnes tanget ap omnibus approbetur. For himself it was keep troth, pactum serva. It was these aims and his lifelong endeavors to carry them out in this spirit that made Edward I the greatest of our kings. In himself he was not only great, he was good. He was of frugal, simple tastes, chaste and truly religious. He was above all things a warrior and a sportsman. He loved the battle, and he loved the chase. But he was by no means deficient in book-learning. Like all great kings, he learned to speak the tongues of the men with whom he had to deal. He could talk English, Latin, French, and perhaps also Spanish. He followed his father in patronizing art. He was himself a lawyer as well as a statesman. The defects of his character were his impetuosity and his violence. He was rash, passionate, vindictive, and yet he always believed himself to be following the right. He could even descend to a trick, and yet he was always an honest man. Stories are told of him which explain both the terror and the love which he inspired. He was awful in his wrath. Once, when he was raiding a deputation of clergy, the dean of St. Paul's fell dead before him from sheer fright. He was hasty in his anger, He swam a stream and scaled a rock to punish a careless servant, and he beat a clumsy squire with his own hands, and then made him a present to atone for his violence. He was a good hearty companion to poor and rich, and loved his jest with the merriest of them. He was a devoted husband and a loving father. And with all this he was one of the greatest men in an age of great men. As statesman, lawyer, warrior, he could compare with the mighty monarchs who ruled abroad in his day, and he left, as few other kings have done, an ineffaceable mark on the history of his own land. Edward, after his coronation, turned at once to the work of government. Robert Burnell, who had long been his close friend and was a great lawyer and an able statesman, he made his chancellor and soon afterwards bishop of Bath and Wells. His treasurer was John Kirby, Bishop of Ely. He learnt much from Francesco Accursi, a legist from Bologna. Many other great lawyers surrounded him, and great barons and bishops were among his ministers. Antony Beck, Bishop of Durham, was a fit successor to such men as Hugh de Puisse. He was a great bishop after the fashion of those days, but he was also a soldier and a politician. In his hands the northern shires over which he watched from his prince bishopric were safe. Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln, was truest among the great lay men, and served his master steadfastly in war and peace. Besides the Earl of Lincoln, there were other great earls who stood round the king. Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, had won his spurs in the baron's war. He married a cousin of the king, and when she died the king gave him his own daughter, Joan, who had been born at Acre during the Crusade. The king's brother Edmund, who had never won the Sicilian crown, was Earl of Lancaster, Leicester, and Derby. Humphrey de Boone, Earl of Hereford, and Roger Bygot, Earl of Norfolk, were to live to lead the opposition to the king at the great crisis of his reign. Edmund, Earl of Cornwall, was the king's cousin and stood by him closely as long as he lived. Edward used the great earls as counsellors and generals, but he was careful to guard against their political influence becoming dangerous to himself. He strove where he could to attach the earls to himself by marriage alliances, or on failure of heirs, to absorb their heritages into the crown lands. So it fell out that under his son their number was much diminished, and men said that Bannockburn was lost because there were but five or six earls to bring help to the king. Edward's first work was in Wales. He knew of old how the Welsh princes fought with the lord's marchers, and how every trouble in England was only too faithfully reflected on the borders. Clewelyn, prince of North Wales, was not long in awakening the new king's wrath. He was called on to do homage. He refused. In 1273, 1274, 1275 he would not come. In 1276 and 1277 Edward made war upon him, and Clewellyn was driven into the fastnesses of Snowdon. At length he submitted and was allowed to marry Eleanor de Montfort, Earl Simon's daughter, and the king's cousin. But as a punishment the land between the Upper D and the Conway was shorn from his principality. The peace was not for long. In 1282 war broke out again. Cluelan was joined by his brother David, who before had served with Edward. The king had tried to introduce English law into those parts of Wales which were his, and to teach the wild people through English merchants and the rule of great barons in strong castles. Everywhere the English were hated, and it was easy to stir up a revolt south and north joining against the English king. Edward was prompt to avenge. He gathered a large army. He got the church to excommunicate Clewelyn as a traitor. He brought his council to Shrewsbury and gave his whole mind to the task of conquering Wales. He carried all before him. The war was slow, but the success was thorough. Llywelyn, refusing a pardon on condition that he would surrender his rights, and receive an earldom in Ireland, was slain in a chance fight near Bilth. David, who proclaimed himself prince after his brother's death, was captured and was tried before Parliament at Shrewsbury. On October 3, 1283, he died a traitor's death. From this dates the conquest of Wales. Edward now set himself to make it firmly united to the English kingdom— at Ruthlin in 1284, he issued the Statute of Wales. By it, the land newly annexed from Clewelyn was divided into five shires, Carnarvon, Anglesey, Merioneth, Cardigan, and Camarthen, and everywhere courts like the English were established. Edward's son, born at Carnarvon in 1284, was made, in 1301, Prince of Wales. Still, however, the government of the borders was left to the lord's marchers, and Edward did not summon Welshmen to his English parliament or touch the ancient Welsh law. He united England and Wales under one sway, and he tried to benefit the principality by giving it a good government on English lines, but he did no more. He gave, however, to Wales towns and castles such as Bomaris, Bangor, Carnarvon, and Harlech which should make permanent the English influence, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Peckham, took in hand the reformation and instruction of the Welsh church. Thus from Edward's conquest date most of the fine towns and castles and churches of Wales. Thus ten years of the reign went by in the Welsh wars and the Welsh settlement. Then Edward turned to the legal reforms for which he was so well prepared. He was in some sense the first, and he was certainly the greatest, of the English medieval legislators. The law before his time was largely ancient custom, modified by the enactments of different kings, most of which were not intended to be of permanent force. Edward was surrounded by trained lawyers, already judges like Glanville and Bracton, had endeavored to compress into one book the essence of the many rules under which men lived and which the judges were to enforce. Under Edward this work was continued. Britain succeeded Bracton, and it may be that the king himself designed to make a code. However that may be, he began by reforms which took the direction of a substantial addition to the law. In 1275 he issued the first statute of Westminster, which provided for the enforcement of peace and order. In 1276, there followed the Statute of Regimen, a revision of the law of trespass. In 1278, the Statute of Gloucester restricted the power of the barons and the jurisdiction of the local courts. To carry out the provisions of this statute, commissioners were sent round the country to investigate the titles by which the barons held their privileges. Writs were addressed to the great lords asking by what warrant quo waranto they acquired these powers it seemed to many that the king was interfering with traditional and unquestioned rights the earl of warren produced an ancient and rusty sword and said this is my title with this my ancestors under william the conqueror won their lands and with the sword i will maintain them it was a sign that edward would have to deal no less than his father with a haughty and independent baronage In 1279, came the Statute of Mortmain. By this, it was intended, in the interests of the barons as well as of the king, to prevent the grant of lands to churches or to clergy as such, whereby the land would be released from its feudal obligations, and the lords or the king be deprived of military services and many other dues. All grants of land to corporations, whereby the land came into the dead hand, were forbidden. In 1283, the statute of merchants for the easier recovery of trade debts. In 1284, the statute of Rathlan, already mentioned, did much to simplify the work of the king's judges and financiers. In 1285 came the second statute of Westminster, which covered a large range of law modifying and reforming. It included the law De Donis Conditionalibus which safeguarded the rights of legal heirs to landed property. In the same year, the statute of Winchester revived and reorganized the ancient military force of the land, which had done such good service against King David in 1138 and William the Lion in 1174. It provided also for a police system by the enforcement of the duties of citizens in Watch and Ward. In 1290 the Third Statute of Westminster, Quia Emptores, prevented the lessening of a feudal lord's privileges by the granting of land from one of his tenants to a subtenant. From this date all new grants became as grants from the original lords, and no new manners could be created. In later years there seemed little need for new laws. In 1305 the writ of Trail Baston, directed the prompt and rigorous suppression of the thieves and marauders who disturbed the land. In 1307, the statute of Carlisle forbade the collecting of money for the Pope. This list shows the comprehensive nature of Edward's legislation, but it by no means expresses the whole of his work in legal reform. Directly and indirectly, by legislation, by the encouragement of a scientific study of law, and by the increase of litigation which was to some extent the result of his measures, he did much both to systematically organize the law courts and to raise up trained bodies of lawyers. Men began to be advised by attorneys and represented by counsel. The judges became professional men, adhering to their own work and their own courts, and not as under Henry II, made useful wherever the king wanted them. The law courts became easier of access and more rapid, more scientific and more regular in their working. And in the country at large, order was enforced, and men were able to live more securely, and with a growing feeling of loyalty to the king and unity in the nation. This feeling was increased by Edward's great work in the development or the creation of Parliament as we now know it. After various preliminary efforts, he issued writs in 1295, for a parliament which should fully represent all the classes of the nation. He did not destroy the feudal council of the king, which the barons attended, because they held land of the king. But he took part of this council, and he took also from the shire courts and the church courts, and out of these he made his model parliament. This contained representation of the three estates of the realm, the clergy, the barons, and the people or commons. The clergy appeared, by number one, all bishops and those abbots to whom the king sent special summons, number two, two elected representatives from each diocese and each cathedral. The barons were now distinguished by Edward, who made a practical separation between the greater and the lesser, by summoning the former by special writ, and thus creating the House of Lords. And leaving the latter without any special political privilege. Thus the commons included the lesser barons or knights, the freeholders, the citizens, and Edward created the House of Commons by requiring the sheriffs in each county to cause to be elected two knights from the shire and two citizens from each important town who were to come to the parliament to represent the community which elected them. These three estates were not yet divided into distinct houses, and the inferior clergy, partly because they already met in their own convocations, rarely if ever obeyed the royal summons to send representatives. But a parliament was thus created which fairly represented all interests in the land, and to this parliament Edward gave the fullest competence in advising and in ordaining that had ever been given to any English assembly. He never shook himself entirely free of the idea of kingship as involving a supreme and arbitrary power, but he aimed at, and on the whole he honestly carried out the realization of his maxim, quod omnis tangit ab omnibus approbetur, that which touches all should be approved by all. How important this concession was will be seen as we consider the later history of the reign but Edward had constantly to turn from home to foreign politics, from his great legal and constitutional reforms to the care and extension of his interests abroad. During the early years of his reign he was occupied in doing homage for his Aquitanian possessions to the French king, his cousin, and in recognizing his rights as feudal lord. In 1279 he succeeded in right of his wife to the county of Pontieux, at the mouth of the Somme, which once again gave to England a footing in northern France. The Treaty of Amiens in the same year made a satisfactory arrangement between the kings, but the next ten years were years of constant political intrigue, though not of actual war. In 1286 Edward went to France for three years. He did homage to the new French king, Philip IV, the fair, and he busied himself in trying to make peace in Europe and preparing for a crusade. He set himself to develop the commerce of Bordeaux and to found new towns throughout his duchy, but the peace did not last long. The development of the southern trade which Edward had fostered led to war with the north. The seamen of Gascony and of Normandy were constantly fighting in the English Channel. French ships were captured, and Philip required Edward to give reparation. The English king replied that all men wronged could get justice in the English courts, and when he refused to come to Paris, Philip declared that he had forfeited the Duchy of Aquitaine. After negotiations which the French king used only to gain time, Philip, by an act of shameful treachery, gained possession of a number of castles, and soon of the whole of Gascony. Edward got up a great European alliance against him, but the troubles in Scotland and Wales and the difficulties in his own land prevented his ever seriously undertaking the French war. It dragged on for years with varying success, and the French continually aided the Scots, while Edward joined with the Flemings against France. At length a truce was made in 1299, when Edward married as his second wife the French king's sister Margaret peace was made May twentieth, thirteen 1303, by which Gascony was restored to the English king. Scotland claimed a far greater share of Edward's attention than France. In 1286, Alexander III, the last of the old line of Scots kings, died. His heiress was Margaret, his granddaughter, only child of his daughter Margaret and Eric, king of Norway. She was summoned to Scotland, and it was arranged that she should marry the young Edward of England. But she died on her voyage, and there remained no one who had clear right to the Scots crown, 1290. A great number of claimants started up, and it was agreed to submit the decision to Edward I as overlord. The rights of England over Scotland had been both indefinite and contested, and their exercise had depended upon the strength of the sovereign by whom they were enjoyed, but Edward believed them to be genuine and fully legal, and he undertook the task of adjudging the claims as a feudal duty and in simple faith. Three claimants were prominent: Henry, Lord Hastings, John Baliol, and Robert Bruce. On November thirtieth, twelve ninety two The crown was awarded to John Baliol, and he did homage to Edward for the kingdom. For a while the new king ruled happily as a vassal of England, but the French war and Edward's financial troubles led before long to far more serious disturbance. Edward had all along been hampered by want of money. He had begun his reign with heavy debts of his fathers and from his own crusade. So long as there was no exceptional demand upon him, he had been able to carry on the government without any excessive taxation. In 1290 he had yielded to popular pressure and had banished all Jews from England. This was a considerable sacrifice of money to him, but the measure was unwise and wrong, and it seems to have been carried out in some cases with great cruelty. A few years later the king felt the need of those from whom he could readily obtain money but he was too honorable to take a bribe, as the French king did, to allow the Jews to return. From this time troubles came thickly upon him. His devoted wife, Eleanor of Castile, whom men called the Peacemaker, died in 1290, and Bishop Kirkby his treasurer in the same year. In 1292 died the great lawyer Burnell. In 1294 a general rising took place in Wales, with the Welsh, Philip of France allied himself, and he also induced John Baliol to join him, for the King of Scots had begun to chafe against his suzerain when Edward began to interfere in local Scottish matters by summoning Scots litigants to appear before his courts at Westminster. It was in the midst of these troubles that Edward summoned his great Parliament of 1295, thus asking the help and counsel of his people in his greatest stress. Help was not refused. Clergy, barons, knights, and townsmen all granted liberal taxes, ranging from an eleventh to a seventh of their goods. With this he prepared to meet the threatened danger. To Gascony he sent a large force. Then he prepared to meet the Scots— First, he sent a special summons to Balliol to attend his parliament at Newcastle on March 1, 1296, with his barons. When they did not come, Edward prepared to march against them. But already a force of near 40,000 Scots had burst into Cumberland and was ravaging far and near. The Chronicle of Lanercost, written at the time in the invaded district, says that they surpassed the cruelty of the heathen, for not being able to seize upon the strong, they wreaked their vengeance on the weakly, the sickly, and the young. Children of two and three years old they impaled on spears and threw into the air. Consecrated churches they burned, and they vilely treated and slew women dedicated to God. They were stayed by the stalwart resistance of the burghers of Carlisle. Edward did not turn aside. He was soon before Berwick, and took it with little difficulty, though with great loss of men on both sides. Thence he marched on. The castle of Dunbar was held against him by its countess, though the earl himself was in his army. The Scots sent a large force to protect it, but Edward's generals proved victorious, and on April 27th the castle surrendered to the king in person. Three of the Scots' earls, four barons, and seventy knights were among the captives. Thence Edward proceeded and took Roxburgh, Dunbarton, and Jedburgh. Edinburgh yielded to an eight-day siege, then Stirling and Perth, and on July 10th Balliol came to him at Brecon and submitted, admitting his disloyalty and surrendering the kingdom of Scotland into his hand as a justly forfeited fief. On August 28th, in a parliament at Berwick, the Scots barons took anew the oath of allegiance and renounced their alliance with France. Edward, like Henry II before him at the Treaty of Falaise, took the castles of Edinburgh, Roxburgh, Jedburgh, and Berwick into his own hands, and he appointed the Earl of Warren as guardian of Scotland. He took no bitter vengeance. Balliol was kept for only three years in honorable captivity and was then allowed to retire to his estates in Normandy. The barons who had broken their oaths he forgave. But when he returned, he took with him to England the Scots' regalia, and the ancient stone on which the kings were wont to be crowned, and which still remains in Westminster Abbey, set into the chair on which British sovereigns now sit at their coronation. Thus Scotland submitted. But Edward's troubles were not over. In 1296, Pope Boniface VIII had by the Bill de Claricis Laicos, forbidden ecclesiastics to pay any taxes on church property without the pope's leave. Edward had already done something to anger churchmen. He had compelled Archbishop Peckham to withdraw some canons which had been issued reflecting on the royal power. He had, by the statute of Mortmain, obtained the power of stopping all grants of land to the church, He had made great demands on the clergy for money, extending in 1294 to half their revenues, and they had been reluctant to attend the national parliament which met in 1295. The bull caused an open quarrel. Archbishop Winchelsea, who had succeeded Peckham in 1294, refused to allow any further grant, and the king thereupon declared that all clergy who would not pay were outlawed. You that appear for the clergy, said the Chief Justice at Westminster, take notice, that in future no justice is to be done them in the King's court in any matter of which they may complain, but nevertheless justice shall still be done to all persons who have any complaint against them. At this very time other classes were almost equally at variance with the King. The barons were chafing under his inquiry into their privileges and his restrictions of their rights, The merchants were protesting against the increase of the customs, six shillings, eight pence, on every sack of wool exported had been granted in 1275. It was not hard to organize a determined opposition. In 1297 the king summoned the barons. It seemed that his model parliament had soon broken down, for the clergy were outlawed and he did not summon the commons. Edward demanded that his barons should serve for the recovery of Gascony, while he himself went to Flanders to attack France from the north. Roger Bygot, Earl of Norfolk, and Earl Marshal, and Humphrey de Boone, Earl of Hereford, the constable, refused to go without him. Their duty, they said, required their attendance on the king, but they had no other obligation. By God, said Edward, you shall go or hang. By the same oath, answered the marshal, I will neither go nor hang. It seemed as if a new baron's war would break out. Edward summoned a feudal levy at Westminster, July 1297, and there a peace seemed to be made. The Pope allowed the clergy to make voluntary gifts. King and clergy were reconciled. Edward confirmed the Great Charter and the Charter of the Forests, The king then went to Flanders, and his son Edward was left to arrange for the reissue of Magna Carta. The confirmation of the charters is an important document. Besides renewing the great charter and the charter of the forest, and requiring that they should be read in all cathedral churches twice a year, it declared that the king would take no more such aids, tasks, and prizes as he had taken without the common consent of the realm, and it undertook that the maltote, or heavy custom on wool, should never again be levied without consent. Edward accepted and confirmed the act, and again in 1299 he renewed his oath to it. In 1300 the articuli super cartas limited the power of royal officials and ordered a forest survey. In 1301 the charters were again renewed and reform undertaken. Thus, though the king had still some means of taking money apart from council or parliament, he stood honestly by his word and kept within his rights. But the archbishop and the barons still suspected him, and his last years were troubled by their distrust and opposition. These last years were again years of strife with Scotland. Wales had again been gradually reduced to submission, and young Edward had been made its prince. But the Scots had not remained at peace after the conquest of 1296. The Earl Warren, Edward's minister, had been attacked by an outlaw of Galloway, William Wallace, or the Welshman, and was utterly defeated at Stirling, September 10, 1297. Wallace became for a time the ruler of Scotland. The Battle of Stirling had placed the land at his mercy, and he was a stern conqueror. Contemporary writers record terrible instances of his barbarity, and when he invaded England he spared neither age nor sex. The English border lords retaliated with similar brutalities. Edward determined to bitterly avenge the attack of the governor of Scotland, as Wallace was now called. He gathered a great army at York, and after a year's delay he was ready to proceed, having now made peace with France. He pursued Wallace to the forest of Falkirk. There he won a great victory on July 22, 1298, and utterly crushed the power of Wallace. The governor yielded up his office and fled. The Scots, however, would not now submit as readily as before. They declared that they held the kingdom for John Baliol, whom Edward had imprisoned, and they named three regents to rule the land for him. War went on without any decisive action till Pope Boniface VIII interfered and declared that he was Lord of Scotland. But the English Parliament at Lincoln in 1301 declared that the claim was unjustifiable and asserted Edward's right to rule. Year after year Edward fought with varying success till in 1303 he overran the whole land, received the submission of the regents, the Bishop of St. Andrews, John Coman, and Robert Bruce, and after the capture of Stirling in 1304, drew up a plan for the ruling of Scotland, by which English judges were to be joined to the Scots, and the Scots Parliament was to send representatives every year to the English Parliament. Thus Scotland had a second time submitted to the English King, no leader still held out, And even Wallace, in his exile, was willing to yield on terms. The king, it appears, was ready to receive his surrender, but Wallace soon changed his mind, for he returned from France to Scotland and remained in hiding. He was captured and executed in London for the robberies, murders, and felonies of which he had been guilty. For the king, in his narrow legal view of Wallace's actions, refused to see in him. Anything more than a chief of marauders. Edward thought that Scotland was now at peace, but it was to remain so only for a short time. In the winter of 1305, Robert Bruce, grandson of him who had claimed the crown in 1291, murdered the regent, John Comyn, who stood loyal to his oath to Edward, in the church of Dumfries. He mustered his retainers and got himself crowned at Schoon, and raised a revolt against the English king. Edward again marched northwards with his nephew, Amer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, as his lieutenant. Wherever he came he conquered, but Bruce fled from him into the wild north and could not be caught. At last Edward determined to put forth his whole strength, and gathered a great army that he might utterly crush the country. As he marched, he fell sick. He stayed several months at Carlisle, and when he went forward again he died. On July 7th, 1307 at Borough on Sands. In his last years and in his Scots wars, he had been harsh and cruel, but he did all in firm confidence in the justice of his cause. When he made his solemn vow at the knighting of Prince Edward in 1306 to avenge the murder of Comyn and punish the broken faith of the Scots, he looked on them not as a noble nation fighting for liberty, but as a perjured and rebellious company of outlaws. Whom it would be a shame to him as a king and as a knight not to punish. He was a great warrior, a great lawgiver, a great worker, and he died still working. Under his hand, the constitution of England had changed more than it changed for two centuries after. He had thrown his whole heart into what he did for his people, and he left marks which could never be effaced. Even in his mistakes, we cannot forget that he was good as well as great, and his severity does not conceal his true love for his people. End of chapter 6